It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. George Will, a political writer and commentator, says the Republican Party has gone from being the party of ideas to a cult of personality. He says it used to stand for congressional supremacy, free trade, and fiscal realism. Now he thinks there is no conservative party. Conservatism right now is, a, is an orphan persuasion in a cold and un, uncaring world. To be a persuasion without a party is to risk a kind of irrelevance, but that uh, is better than pretending that you have a home when you really don't. Today, Will talks about modern American conservatism. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from the McCloskey Speaker Series held by the Aspen Community Programs. Four years ago, George Will changed his political affiliation from Republican to unaffiliated. He says the party no longer represents his beliefs. Last year, his book, The Conservative Sensibility, was released. In it, he says conservatism is under threat, both from progressives and elements inside the Republican Party. In a conversation with USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, he talks about the party's transformation, the 2020 election, and the link between Christian evangelicals and conservatism. Here's Page. So I started out with a Washington read of your new book. I went to the index. I found no entry between Truman, Harry, and Truss, Lynn. That is, no entry for Trump, Donald. Now, it's not that it's such a short book. It's 600 pages long. Why isn't President Trump mentioned in it? Two reasons. It's a book about ideas, and I don't think he participates in, in that grand adventure. Uh, second, it's a book that I hope will last longer than his presidency. I was on the Bill Maher show, and Bill Maher said that you don't mention Trump in your book. And I said, I don't mention Doris Day either. <laughs> you know, just, just for the record, Donald Trump doesn't like you either. Uh, I, I gather. He, at a rally in the last campaign, he said that George will look smart because he wears those little glasses. If you take those glasses away from him, he's a dummy. Well, I changed, <laughs> I changed my glasses, yes. <laughs> What's it like to be dissed by the president in that way? Uh, well, he wasn't president at that point, but uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, long ago, he invited me to come give a speech to him and his friends at Mar-a-Lago, which I did. After he endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012, I was asked on television by George Stephanopoulos about that. And I said, I didn't see the upside of being endorsed by a bloviating ignoramus whose life proves that if you have a high enough net worth, you can... Uh, lower the tone of American politics. Someone went to him and said, well, why, why doesn't George Will like you? And he says, well, I invited him to Mar-a-Lago to give a speech, but I knew he was going to be so boring. I wouldn't attend it, and I stood out on the patio during it, which raised two questions. If he knew I was going to be so boring, why did he invite me? And second, who was the guy with the orange hair in the front row throughout the speech? So we, my experience with him is roughly that of the country's don't believe everything you hear. So you may not have respect for him. However, he is the president of the United States. He's, in fact, a Republican president of the United States. So what does President Trump's tenure, his success in politics in 2016, um, that put him in the White House for now close to four years, what does it say about the state of the Republican Party and of 
of conservatism? Because we do think of the Republican Party as being the conservative party in the country. Well, he was put into power by an extraordinary concatenation of events, uh, most particularly fewer than 78,000 votes spread over three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Otherwise, he wouldn't be president. We'd have been spared an enormous outpouring of sociology about the forces that made him president. I, I, I think what's happened is, to an extraordinary extent, the Republican Party, which uh, had been since the late 1970s, the party of ideas in the United States. My dear friend, my best friend was Pat Moynihan, the senator from New York, who wrote in the late 1970s, something extraordinary has happened. The Republican Party has become the party of ideas. After 2016, it hollowed itself out and became a cult of personality rather than ideas. The Republican Party had believed in uh, often congressional supremacy. It had believed in most of all free trade. Trump said, by the way, you don't believe in free trade anymore. And they said, all right, you're right, I, we don't. The Republican Party was to be the party of realism about the entitlement programs and their unsustainable trajectory. Trump, when it was explained to him, this unsustainable trajectory said, yeah, but I won't be here when the crisis comes. And that was the end of that. He campaigned promising not to touch the entitlement programs in any way. Uh, so the Republican Party went from being the, the party of sort of fiscal realism. Remember, we had a trillion dollar deficit before the pandemic. We had a trillion dollar deficit at more than full employment, at reasonable 2% economic growth, at which point the anxiety was, what's going to happen if we have a recession that starts with trillion dollar deficits? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? What does happen? Well, we don't know, because this, this is, uh, like as is in so many things, this is unprecedented. But my view is a very simple one. There are two ways to finance the government. One is with present taxes, the other is with future taxes. So sooner or later, this borrowing binge, the bill for that is going to come due. Now, I happen to believe that for all the talk about the discord in the United States, the biggest threat to our country domestically is a consensus. Goes from Ted Cruz on the right to Elizabeth Warren on the left. It's as broad as the Republic itself. It's as deep as the Grand Canyon, and it is this. We should have a large, generous, omnipresent, ever-expanding entitlement state and not pay for it. Everyone's agreed on that, as far as I can tell. The political class has a permanent powerful incentive to deficit spending because it enables the political class to give the American people a dollar's worth of government and charge them 80 cents for it. The public likes that. The politicians like that. Everyone likes it except the unconsenting, unvoting, and unborn future generations that are going to pay the bill. So if the, if the Republican Party's been hollowed out and there's this consensus from Ted Cruz to Elizabeth Warren, what, what, where is the home for the conservatives like yourself? Candor compels one to face facts. That's what conservatives are supposed to do. They're the, the grumpy people, the people who spoil the party by facing facts. And the fact is conservatism right now, as I understand conservatism, is, a, is an orphan persuasion in a cold and un, uncaring world. To be a persuasion without a party is to risk a kind of irrelevance, but that uh, is better than pretending that you have a home when you really don't. So right now there is no conservative party. 
depending on the outcome of the 2016 election, uh, the Republican Party may become more hospitable to conservatism after 2021. People may wake up and say, Trump, I barely remember the name. And they'll come, they'll snap back to something like being the party of ideas. Well, here's a, here's a question. Um, and your, the column you wrote last week in the Post, Washington Post makes me, makes me think about this because it was actually reasonably dire. You said, first of all, you had a lead, which I, I love and doesn't relate to my question, but I'm going to read anyway, which was, you said, quote, because of his incontinent use of it, the rhetorical mustard that the president slathers on every subject has lost its tang. But then you wrote about the part I want to ask you about. You said the nation's in a downward spiral. It's not reached its depth. At least it's reached a point where worse is helpful and worse can be confidently expected. What does that mean, worse is helpful? Worse is helpful in the sense that, and the example I gave, but I can give others, was the pardon of Roger Stone. If you have an administration that has gathered around itself and a president who is attracted to himself as a magnet attracts iron dwellings, the bottom dwelling dregs of the Republican Party, like Manafort and Stone and the rest, it's helpful to have that made clear. His pardon of Stone said there's a kind of brazenness to the exercise of the presidential pardon power that is helpful in that as we approach an election that will inevitably be a referendum on the incumbent, to have people have the, have the country given an, an unvarnished, undisguised look at the nature of what they're voting on. That's the sense in which worse is better. Who do you plan to vote for in November? Biden. Biden. Oh yes. Have you voted? Have you voted for a Democrat before? Never. First time you've ever voted for a Democrat for president. That's right. Although, when I first came to Washington in 1970 to work on the Senate staff, my first political hero, as it were, was a senator, a Democratic senator, was Scoop Jackson of Washington. Uh, I was working on the Senate staff for a Republican, uh, Gordon Allen of Colorado. As I said earlier, my best friend was Senator from New York, Pat Moynihan. So I have nothing against Democrats, but uh, I've never had the occasion to vote for one. This year I will. Have you ever voted for a Democrat for any office before? I don't think so. I'm a big believer in, in uh, parties uh, and uh party strength and party tickets, not this year. Of course, I don't have a party, which is, I'm a free agent. You know, you, you literally don't have a party because you, you left the Republican Party and registered as unaffiliated four years ago, right? When, I did. When Trump was a nominee. On June 2nd, 2016, my friend Paul Ryan, then Speaker of the House, endorsed Donald Trump, and the next morning I changed my registration reasoning that if someone as cheerful, intelligent, public-spirited, policy-oriented as Paul Ryan is going to endorse Trump, nothing will prevent the normalization of him, and I didn't want to be part of that. And just one last, I realize your vote is supposed to be secret, so you can refuse to answer, but who'd you vote for four years ago? Uh, uh, Romney. Romney, yeah. Oh, uh, no, oh, oh, I forgot, I wrote someone in, I can't remember who. 
<laughs> oh, I do remember. I wrote in Ben Sass. <laughs> okay. Um, we're we're 106 days out from the election. Who do you think wins? Uh, I if, if, political prophecy is optional folly, and I'm now about to commit it. Uh, I believe the polls have been remarkably stable. I don't think there's been a poll taken in 2020 pitting Biden against Trump that Trump has won. I tend to believe the polls now. Uh, with uh, Biden having a double-digit lead. Uh, I believe that it will be a decisive victory, and I think that's very important because the president has already announced that he might not accept, I don't know what that means, but he says he might not accept the outcome. Therefore, it's wise to have a tsunami of popular votes. Remember, the president uh, complained about and cried fraud in 2016 when he won. Imagine what it's going to be like when he loses, as I expect him to do. Uh, people are saying, gosh, because, there'll be, because of the pandemic, there will be so many mail ballots cast and so much early voting and all the rest. Perhaps we won't know the outcome for some weeks. My risky but uh, fun projection is that by 11 o'clock Eastern time on election night, we can all go to bed. I, my projection is that uh, Biden will have carried the most important swing state of Florida. He will have carried another swing state, North Carolina. He will have carried the aforementioned Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and it'll be over. So you're voting for Biden. Do you think he will be a, a good president, or will he just not be Donald Trump? I think he'll be an adequate president, but then I'm much less... Uh, Donald Trump has cured me of presidential fastidiousness. Uh, I, everyone looks good now. Uh, and this, I mean, Joe Biden is an amiable, decent man, 36 years in the Senate, 34 of them on the Foreign Relations Committee. We tend to forget that foreign relations is where the presidential power is uh, largest and presidential discretion is rightly uh, at its broadest. So all this matters. Uh, I think he has a taste for talented people to have around him. So uh, it'll be a distinct improvement. That's a low bar, but uh, worth saying. So in, in your new book, The Conservative Sensibility, you, you write about the birth of a, American conservatism. It's, it's very sweeping uh, in its look at um, where conservatism has been, its ebbs and flows, uh, various times in our in our history. Thinking, thinking about looking forward, say if what you say is right, that uh, President Trump loses his bid for re-election, what, what happens then? Is there, that, of course, a lot of Trump forces have taken control of state parties. He's clearly, he's got very high approval rating with Republican voters. Does, does conservatism reassert itself in the Republican Party? What, what, how do you envision this post-Trump era? Depends partly on how decisive the election is. If my prediction were to come true, that there's a decisive tsunami, people would say, well, that was perhaps an experiment we really shouldn't do again, particularly if it costs the Republicans the Senate. If it's a narrow victory, the party will be consumed by vitriolic name calling and finger pointing. People will say it was the never Trumpers who did it to us in the media and all the rest. 
and you'll have a party that says, well, we're going to stick to the Trump lesson and next time we'll do it better. Of course, if he wins, they will feel ratified. And, and what we will have is a number of people trying to compete to be oxymoron alert here, the thinking person's Trump. That would be extremely difficult for the Republicans. Right now, the intellectual energy in the Republican Party is with people who say, well, the lesson of Trump's success is that capitalism and free markets have not served a portion of America well. And therefore, we need certain things normally associated with the Democratic Party, industrial policy, protectionism, uh, a general skepticism about markets as an equitable allocator of wealth and opportunity in our society. I'm thinking of people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, people of this sort. Uh, so it depends on what happens, uh, how emphatic the loss is. Right now, uh, Mr. Trump, is his re-election strategy seems to me to be to get an ever larger portion of an ever smaller portion of the American electorate. That is an ever larger portion of non-college educate, educated white voters. That is a steeply declining portion of the population. And it is an extremely risky uh, strategy that he's relying on. But the amazing thing about his presidency is for three years and six months now, a man who lost the popular vote by approximately five times more than George W. Bush lost the popular vote to Al Gore in, 20, in 2000, uh, Trump has done nothing to expand his base. He's done much to inflame his base and keep it loyal, which I think he's done. But uh, when you acquire the presidency, losing the popular vote, you'd think you'd do something to change that. You know, in, in your book, you reveal something, maybe you don't reveal it, but it was something I didn't know. I've, I've always thought, George Will, he's probably an Episcopalian. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's the bow ties. I don't know. But in the book, you, you say uh, that you are an atheist. Your grandfather, your father's father was a Lutheran minister, but your father, a professor of philosophy, was an atheist. And you write, I grew up in a completely secular home where the subject of religion simply did not arise. And you say that like your father, you are, quote, an amiable, low voltage atheist. What is, what is that? Well, first I use the word atheist rather than agnostic because it's more honest. An agnostic is someone who's got his doubts. I don't have doubts. I just don't. I'm not wired that way. I just, uh, transcendence just doesn't appeal to me or convince me. My father became a philosopher because as a young boy, he would sit outside Pastor Will's study. And he, my, my grandfather was a Lutheran minister, had small churches in Maryland and Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. And my father as a young man would sit outside the pastor's study, listening to Pastor Will talk with some of his more reflective uh, parishioners, trying to reconcile the doctrines of free will and grace. And my father took, thought this was fun stuff to listen to and went off and became an academic philosopher. Uh, as I say, it never entered my ken as I grew up. It just wasn't part of my mental, the, the mental furniture of, of the Will household. Uh, 
which is what I meant by amiable levels. I don't want to convert anybody for or against. I'm perfectly happy. I'm married to a ferocious Presbyterian, so I'm, I'm quite calm about this, but uh, it just doesn't connect with my wiring. I would just note as a Presbyterian myself, the idea of a ferocious Presbyterian is sort of an oxymoron, but, but we'll, let, we'll let that go. You, you, you though, we, we find religion, people who are very serious about their religion play increasingly important roles in the, in the Republican Party, especially Christian evangelicals. Is that a, do you worry about that or do you think that's a good thing? What's your perspective on that? I think they, that the evangelical Christians have become such an important part of the Republican base that it makes the Republican Party a bit hesitant and tentative and uh, I won't say crippled, but awkward in appealing to an ex a large and growing portion of the country who are what are called nuns. That is not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S people who, who say they have no religious affiliation. Among those 18 to 24, I think it's something like 40% of that cohort. Uh, so to the extent that Republicans say in order to be a Republican, in order to be a conservative, you have to be a theist of some sort, then Republicans are again limiting their appeal. The chapter in my book to which you're referring is called Conservatism Without Theism was the one I had the most fun writing. Why was it the most fun? Well, it's because it's counterintuitive, because generally conservatism as it came, at least as it was born in Europe, in reaction to the secularization forces of the French Revolution, was a kind of thrown an altar, blood and soil, defense of hierarchies, and including confessional states. So conservatism, as it came from Europe, was definitely entangled with, uh, with a, a theistic approach to life. And uh, I'm not of that persuasion. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. The United States is in the midst of a national uprising unlike any we've seen in modern history. Protests over racism and police violence have happened before, but now Americans of all colors are railing against injustice. Alicia Garza, co-creator of Black Lives Matter, says she hopes the result is real change. While this is an incredible moment of uprising and an incredible moment of reckoning, I really long for this to also be a moment for change. I think there are a lot of rules that have been rigged against Black communities for a very long time that we need to see the courage and drive the political will to actually start to shift. Hear her conversation with Georgetown professor Michael Eric Dyson and journalist Eugene Scott on our website, aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Susan Page. You know, I love the I love the dedication in this book. Uh, let me just read it. You dedicate it to Barry Goldwater. You call him the cheerful malcontent who showed that it is possible to wed that adjective and that noun. Cheerful and malcontent. And then in the book itself, 
uh, you write more about Goldwater and you, you say that his losing campaign would invigorate a political tradition that had become dormant and inarticulate. And in this sense, Goldwater won in 1964. It just took 16 years to count the votes. Talk about, tell us about Barry Goldwater. Well, first of all, uh, to be a footnote here, uh, the phrase a cheerful malcontent was the title of a very slender book written about Goldwater in 1963 or 64 by Richard Rovere, the very fine uh, political correspondent for the New Yorker. Uh, I cast my first vote for Barry Goldwater, uh, my first presidential vote in 1964. I'd been a kind of uh, normal college Democrat. I supported it was active in students for Jack Kennedy in 1960. Then I went to England to study for two years at Oxford, saw the Berlin Wall, saw uh, British statism and watery socialism suffocating. I thought the energies of a creative people came back and voted for Goldwater. Uh, Goldwater uh, demonstrated the constructive losing that is, after Goldwater, the Republican Party became a conservative party. Uh, and I thought it, it was part of the, the ideological sorting out of American politics. He didn't accomplish it, he started it. When I came to Washington to work on the Senate staff for a Republican, the Democrats controlled the Senate. And the Democrats controlling the Senate were Richard Russell from Wender, Georgia, John Stennis from Corinth, Mississippi, James Eastland from Southern Mississippi, McClellan of Arkansas, Holland of Florida, Sparkman of Alabama. I mean, it was entirely run by conservative Southern Democrats. They're all gone. There are no more uh, conservative Democrats to speak of. There are very few liberal Republicans. The Republicans, when I came to work in the Senate, included Brooke of Massachusetts, Case of New Jersey, Keating and Javits of New York, Percy of Illinois, et cetera, et cetera. We have now, the, the, the political scientists, particularly in the 1950s said, wouldn't it be great if we could sort our parties out the way the Europeans have done, have ideological parties, and we'd have responsible party government. B.O.K. and other political scientists said this. Well, we've done it. And is everybody happy? I'm not quite sure. Uh, the, so Barry Goldwater made Ronald Reagan possible. Yes, he did. He did succeed in getting to the White House. But in your book, I think you're putting Reagan revolution in, in quotes. Is that meaningful? Did you not really think it was such a revolution? Well, as the Reagan revolution, as people think of it, as someone who frontally and aggressively challenged the ligaments of the welfare state. Uh, not true. Ronald Wilson Reagan uh, never challenged the New Deal, which was put in place by the man who came to Washington first to be Woodrow Wilson's Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Ronald Reagan's complaint was with the Great Society, not with the basic social safety net. Remember, Ronald Reagan was someone who came to political consciousness and whose formative years as a political person were the 1930s during the Depression. He was a man who firmly believed what he incessantly said, which was he did not leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left him. So uh, he, he was someone, 
The story, by the way, about Ronald Reagan and Goldwater, and I, I, I think it's true. Someone wrote a speech for Goldwater to give at, the, at this uh, televised, nationally televised fundraising broadcast. Goldwater read it and with that no-nonsense gruff manner of his says, that doesn't sound like me, get Ronnie to do it. So Ronald Reagan gave the speech known as the speech among conservatives. It's called Time to Choose. And the, the fundraising phones lit up and a star was born. Now, that's an, I've never heard, I've, I've many times heard about the Reagan, that first speech by Reagan that was so important in his career, but I did not realize it was a speech written for Goldwater. That's the story I have heard. And it certainly sounds like Barry, who minced no yeah. word. If not true, technically true in a larger sense, maybe. It's got to be true. True enough for um, work. So if, if uh, Barry Goldwater is a cheerful malcontent, an adjective and a noun, what is George Will? What is your adjective and noun? <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm cheerful. Uh, one of the things I try to uh, advocate in my book is intelligent pessimism. Pessimism is not fatalism. Fatalism is you say things are going to hell in a handcart and nothing can be done about it. A, an intelligent pessimist says there are lots of ways that democracies can go wrong. The founding generation consisted of intelligent pessimists. Um, not Jefferson so much. He was uh, too optimistic for my taste, but he wasn't here when the Constitution was written. Uh, I'm thinking of Hamilton and Madison and George Mason and others who said they worried a lot about the problems of democracy, which causes some people to say, well, the founders really didn't have their heart in democracy. Quite wrong. They worried only about the problems of democracy because they said only a democracy will do for our country. And therefore we ought to concentrate on the po possible problems of democracy. I, I think intelligent pessimism sounds a little downbeat for George Will, but, but I'll let that go. Here's, here's something President Trump has done that he didn't start, but he certainly has continued this trend toward a more and more powerful president. Um, exerting powers that we didn't previously realize that president could assert. This is something that you write about in your book that, that concerns you. Talk about that. The problem began with uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his stewardship model of the presidency, which he said meant a president is entitled to do anything he is not explicitly forbidden to do. Well, his practice found a theoretician in Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally, he did root and branch. He said, the doctrine of natural rights is nonsense. He said, don't read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, it's fourth of the boilerplate. The fact is, he said, the very Madisonian architecture of our constitution with the separation of powers is a mistake. He said, it was all very well back when there were four million of us uh, spread thinly along the eastern shore of a continent, 80% uh, of us living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But now, said Wilson, we're a complex society united by steel rails and copper wire, and we need a more nimble, assertive, emphatic government, which requires transcending the separation of powers, 
marginalizing Congress and having a freewheeling, emphatic, unfettered executive of the sort Woodrow Wilson tried to be. Then came after that, as I mentioned before, the man who came to Washington to be his assistant secretary of the Navy, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who took us a long way. As I say in, in my book, a great moment of transformation of the modern presidency was when FDR gave his first fireside chat shortly after inauguration. The first two words he spoke do not appear in the text of his fireside chat that is in the, the library at Hyde Park, but they're very important. His first two words were, my friends. Now, try to imagine George Washington addressing the American people, my friends, that austere man. Uh, Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland, Calvin Coolidge, no president before would have done that. But radio giving the, a new intimacy to the presidency, to bringing the presidency into everyone's living rooms, FDR pioneered the idea that our presidents are our friends, that we are to have an intimate relationship with them, that they are much more than the head of one of the three branches of one of our many governments. They are much more than assigned to, in the rather austere language of Article Two of the Constitution, that they are to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. They have a semi-sacerdotal role, moral leaders, national tutors. All of this magnified by modern technologies, first by radio, then by television, have given us a swollen presidency that has outgrown constitutional restraints and has worried me for 30 or 40 years uh, that should worry my progressive friends now that they see a president occupying it who's not in the Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt tradition. I like to think that one of the, again, in my worse is better theme here, that uh, one of the effects of the current president will be to cause my progressive friends to rethink their infatuation with executive power. I, I, do you think that's likely? I mean, because it, Democrats have a big head of steam toward undoing things that President Trump has done and doing things that they think are important. They don't seem to be taking a less is more attitude. No, I, I don't think it's likely. It's another, it, it's, I know a lost cause when I see one having backed enough of them. And uh, I, I think the idea of restraining executive power is not going to be done by the Democrats or by anyone else anytime soon. I remember during the run up to, to the, uh, the, the primaries this year, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris outdid themselves saying, here's what I will do by executive order. Uh, this is what Barack Obama did in his, I have a phone and I, have a t I, I, I can do these executive orders. No, I, I think that the intoxication of executive power is, is overwhelming. Republicans for many years, believed, as I still do, in congressional supremacy. Then, beginning in 1981, they had the heady experience of Ronald Reagan. And they said, gosh, executive power is a lot of fun when your guy is wielding it. And uh, that was the end of the Republican, the, in my judgment, wholesome Republican skepticism about the modern presidency. My choice for the Republican nominee is 
uh, the Democratic nomination this year was Senator Bennett of Colorado, mm -hmm. who said at one point, he says, my theme is elect me president and you'll have a president you won't have to think about for weeks at a time. My kind of guy. You, you mentioned FDR as the radio president. And of course, we know that John Kennedy was the TV president and the effects of that have, has had on, on the way politicians communicate in what Americans are looking for. What's Obviously, Donald Trump is the Twitter president. He uses that new platform in a way no one has had imagined could be used. What's the effect, do you think, of that? It's the dumbing down of public discourse. It's brief. It lends itself to instantaneous communications of half-baked thoughts. It lends itself to vituperation and abuse uh, all around. It, uh, it uh, communicates abuse and generates reciprocal abuse. It, uh, it's made for people who think they can say something profound or indeed on many subjects can say all that they know, think, and believe in 280 characters. It's just not the way adults like ought to want to communicate. So I know, I know we're getting toward the end of our, our conversation before we go to audience questions. As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, your first book dealing with these topics came out in 1978, a half century ago. And I'm wondering how you're, of course, we think of conservatism as, as being very respectful of kind of consistency of thought. On the other hand, in what ways has your perspective changed over that time? For instance, what would a 2020 George Will tell the 1978 George Will? What do you know now that you didn't understand then? Uh, I know that uh, modern government itself becomes an interest group. The government becomes, to use the Madisonian term, a faction. I believe Elizabeth Warren has a firm grip on half of a point. She says it is ominous, and she's right, it is ominous that five of the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States by per capita income are in the Washington, D.C. area. Washington, D.C. has no manufacturing. It has no natural resources. It makes nothing but rules, laws, and trouble. Why is it so rich? It's because trillions of dollars slosh through the federal government, which becomes a haven for rent seekers. It becomes the target and the, the target of capture by organized, compact, intense, educated, articulate, wealthy, and well-lawyered factions who know how to work the, the gears and pulleys of government. And therefore, when you have a, an interventionist government, it will inevitably be dominated by these groups and will inevitably redistribute wealth upward, which I think is in fact how the current government works. So that's the first thing I've learned. The second thing I've learned, and I want our own filibuster here, is I used to be a believer in judicial modesty. I'm now a believer in an assertive, more engaged judiciary, because I think America is not about a process, majority rule. Rather, it is about a condition of liberty, and that majorities can often be, as the founders understood better than I did in 1978, uh, the fact that majority rule is a problem, and that it is, it, it's a means to an end, it is not an end, and that we need a more engaged judiciary to temper the excesses of majority rule, which is why the chapter in my book is called The Judicial Supervision of Democracy. Thank you so much 
for this conversation. I'm going to turn it back over to Crystal, who's going to pose some questions posed by our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Crystal Logan, Vice President of Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute, reads questions from the online audience. Our first uh, question is, how significant will Biden's VP choice be in driving voter turnout by Democrats and Republicans? And who do you think he should pick? Uh, I don't think vice presidents very often matter very much. The one exception to the rule is Jack Kennedy picking against uh, his, his brother's advice and a lot of others. He picked Lyndon Johnson to run with. Without that, I think he would have lost. He needed Lyndon Johnson to hold portions of the South that had begun to drift away under Dwight Eisenhower. 2004, John Kerry said, we have a chance to carry North Carolina, therefore I'll run with North Carolina Senator John Edwards. He picked Edwards, he lost North Carolina by I think 13 points. So it's pretty hard to find an American who says, I voted for President A because of running mate B. Doesn't happen that often. Second, the idea that Donald Trump won't be a sufficient motivator for Democratic turnout strikes me as passing strange, uh, particularly for African-Americans. Now, Joe Biden in a debate ruled out half the American public as his running mate by saying he wanted a woman. It seems likely, not certain, but likely that events since then after uh, atrocity in uh, Minneapolis that it's apt to be an African-American uh, that being the case, uh, I am in favor of uh, Karen Bass, uh, the African-American woman from the uh, Congresswoman from the Los Angeles area, the leader of the Congressional Black Caucus. Thank you. Uh, assuming Trump is out, how does the Republican Party go about rebuilding? It has to, it's the old cliche of psychoanalysis in order to get well, you have to want to get well. <laughs> I'm not sure the Republican Party is going to want to get well. Uh, if, as I expect, the the, uh, the Republicans are defeated this fall so decisively that they also lose the Senate, that would be the equivalent of the old story about a man who says, I've got a, my mule's perfectly fine, but in order to get his attention, you have to hit it over the nose with a two-by-four. I think being smacked by a two-by-four of an election like this will get their attention that this was really not a good idea, and uh, they will learn that lesson. If, however, it is a dusty result that uh, they lose the White House, maybe lose the Senate, but not by emphatic margins, then you'll have a great fight with the, uh, the bitter end Trumpkins against people who are uh, more prudent and who read the election results differently, and we, you'll get civil war for four years. Our next question is, what are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement? Clearly, there is a problem in this country that uh, is hardly exhausted by the difficult relations between the African-American community and normal policing. There are grievances and unhappiness and uh, uh, difficult aspirations that the country has to renew its commitment to. I would like to see in addition to all the legitimate grievances that have come out, I would like to see the conversation broadened. Uh, as I've said earlier in this discussion, my best friend was Pat Moynihan, who as a 38-year-old social scientist in Lyndon Johnson's Labor Department produced what today, to this day is known as the Moynihan Report, in which he said, we have a national crisis 
because 23.7% of African-American children are born to unmarried mothers. Today, it's, 70, it's 69%. 40% uh, of all American first births, regardless of race, color, creed, or national origin, are born to unmarried women. A majority of American mothers under 30, think of this, a majority of American mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children because the family is and always has been and always will be the primary transmitter of social capital. The habits, mores, customs, dispositions necessary to thrive in a free society. Family disintegration is the biggest problem confronting our country and particularly confronting the African-American community. It's a lot harder to talk about this than it is to talk about police misbehavior, but it is at least as urgent to talk about this. And as a follow on, what do you think the cause is for that, that family um, disintegration? Oh, Lord knows. I mean, it didn't exist in 1950. I think the out of wedlock birth rate at that point was 5%. I don't know what happened in the 1960s, uh, but it did happen in the 1960s when we began to see the intergenerational transmission of poverty because of this. Social scientists of extraordinary talent have worried about this tracing some root causes back to slavery and, and the damage it did to the tradition of family traditions in African-American community. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. Uh, the answer is I don't know and nobody else does, but we better keep thinking about it. Thank you. Our next question is, will we see the return of compromise in Congress anytime soon? <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it because I expect uh, the Democrats will come in and probably end the legislative filibuster, uh, which was supposed to be an inconvenience that would cause, by being an inconvenience, compromise. It has not done so. That's partly because Mike Mansfield, when he was majority leader of the Senate, senator from uh, uh, Montana, because he in the early 1970s said, well, on a filibuster, we'll just say you can filibuster that bill, but we'll go on to other business. If they would just go back to saying, we're not going to do anything else except the filibuster, and you're going to have to hold the floor the way they used to. Uh, if they'd go back to that, then the filibuster, by being a major nuisance, might indeed drive people to compromise. But I expect it's, that that uh, train has left the station. I expect the Democrats will put an end to the filibuster, into the effective 60 vote requirement to pass anything of significance, which the founding fathers did not want. Of course, it's not in the Constitution, it's in the Senate rules, which are changeable and will, I think, be changed. Thank you. Our next question is, you've mentioned past conservative heroes. Who do you see as potential up and coming conservative leaders? Well, we've got a number of them in the, in the Republican Party. Ben Sass is one. There are some people who call themselves conservatives, and I would dispute their title, but Josh Hawley's, Marco Rubio's, and others who offer what they consider new and improved forms of capitalism and new and improved forms of conservatism. It's an argument worth having. Conservatism uh, has as its one of its principal principles is 
in order to conserve, you have to be willing to change and conservatism will have to uh, adapt to new grievances in the society. But there's a, there's a, we've yet to see the future conservative leaders in my judgment. Thank you. Our next question is, why don't more Republicans in the Senate and House stand up to Trump? Have they, have they lost their morals? They're afraid, they're terrified of their own voters. That is, they're terrified of their base. They saw what happened with a few presidential tweets to former Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee and former Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona and former Congressman Mark Sanford of South Carolina. They've seen what happens when Mr. Trump inflames the Republican base against a Republican office holder, and they are, frankly, frightened. Our next question is, what do you think of the Lincoln Project? Can they have an effect? Well, the Lincoln Project is a lot of fun. I mean, they're producing ads that are terrific fun to watch. I'm not sure what effect they're having because, again, who in this country is undecided about Donald Trump after all these years? And we know that in the latest Gallup poll showed 38% approval rating of the president. That's pretty low, but it means more than one in three Americans has watched this stuff for three and a half years and likes it. <laughs> now, again, who's undecided? Uh, so I'm not sure uh, what the target audience for these, as I say, highly amusing and well-produced Lincoln Project ads are. But uh, so I, I, I'm not sure what the what the demographic is here that they're after. What are the three worst things that can happen if Trump wins? What about the three best things if Biden wins? The three worst things that happen if uh, Mr. Trump wins is A, he continues to do the damage he's done to the quality of our public discourse. I believe that what he has done with the name calling and the lying and the, the, the general coarsening of public life is, has done more lasting damage than Richard Nixon's surreptitious felonies did. They were revealed, they were punished, and we moved on as a nation with, with an improved ethic of public conduct. Uh, second, I, I think you'll see an even more unhinged assertion of executive uh, prerogatives that will not be resisted by, by the Senate if he wins. And, and third, you will see a continued retreat from the world and an increasing world anarchy filling the vacuum. If Mr. Biden wins, I would hope the first thing he would do would be undo the worst thing that Mr. Trump did in his first major act as president, which was uh, withdraw us from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which spread the free trade regime, got uh, 11 nations in the Pacific uh, area to, to sign on, was a wonderful counterweight to an expansive China. Second thing that Mr. Biden will do is lower the temperature. He will say, everybody, deep breath. He'll give an inaugural address where he won't dwell on American carnage, as was done in Mr. Trump's uh, 2017 inaugural address. Uh, third, I, I would expect President Biden to uh, perhaps have a, a, a good relationship with the Senate, where he served happily, with Congress, which he is a, a, an institutional protector, and uh, I would hope there'd be a, a, a Republican or two in his cabinet. Can you talk about the failure of the Never Trump movement to recruit more moderate Republicans 
and sustain its momentum. I'm sometimes called a never Trumper, but I don't think I am. I don't know what it means. I mean, I'm a never a lot of people. <laughs> Mr. Trump is is off the charts in my judgment. Uh, the, the, I go back to the original answer. The failure to recruit Republicans of any sort is fear. They have decided, and they may be right for all I know, that if they want a career in Republican politics, they have to toe the line. Now, one of the reasons I felt strongly enough about term limits to write a book on the subject is, it seems to me that if you can't make a lifelong career in politics, you're apt to be braver. You're apt to be willing to risk a limited tenure in politics because losing an election is not career annihilation. It's a, it's not, it doesn't change your life. You go on to something else. But we don't have term limits. We do have unlimited aspirations for careers in politics, and that explains the invertebrate nature of so many Republicans. Why do you think that science in general has been politicized recently and specifically COVID protocol has become so political? Well, because everything has become political. Uh, I think both parties, frankly, are mildly disgraceful in the way they, they cherry pick the science that is convenient for their ideological agendas. The Republicans have their obvious problems with science. I was, Democrats have their problems with social science because they say lots of things will have this, that, and the other effect, whereas we have abundant social science that should make them more skeptical. Uh, but again, when you have a thoroughly saturated political age in which everything becomes political, science will not be exempt. Our last question is, given the court term this past spring, how important do you see the election as a vote on the court itself? I think people may treat it as that. I think if uh, Mr. Scalia had not died when he did in February 2016 and Mitch McConnell had not instantly said they're going to keep that seat open, I don't think Mr. Trump would have won because one in five Trump voters in one plausible exit poll said the reason they voted for Mr. Trump was they were worried about the composition of the Supreme Court. That's unhealthy for the judiciary to be that important, but there you have it. Uh, I think again, however, I'm not sure how many people are movable at this point. I mean, I think we could have the election tomorrow because we know people know how they're going to vote in this. For many reasons, I wish Ruth Bader Ginsburg well. I, 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 I wish her to a long and vigorous life as much as her body will permit. But we really don't want an open Supreme Court seat in this electoral season. Thank you so much, George Will, and thank you, Susan Page. That was a fascinating discussion. George Will is a Pulitzer Prize-winning syndicated columnist whose latest book is The Conservative Sensibility. USA Today journalist Susan Page has covered six administrations and ten presidential elections. Her book is The Matriarch. Their conversation, part of the McCloskey Speaker Series at the Aspen Institute, was held July 20th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. 
Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed by the Aspen Community Programs team, which includes Zoe Brown, Katie Carlson, Crystal Logan, and Jillian Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.